0: And looking forward to next month when we can be back together on a permanent basis again. Thanks to all of you who continue to pray for Gina. She moved out yesterday, moved to uh, Washington, D.C., where she's pursuing a job there. Um, We're excited for her. It's uh, quite exciting that the Lord is Given the health to do this, we pray that he'll sustain her health so that this continues. It'd be massively disappointing if uh, her health didn't hold up and she had to c- come back. Not that we wouldn't want her, but uh, I told her yesterday on the way. I called her when she was on her way down, and I said, "Now I expect lots and lots of tears tonight. Your first night away from Daddy." And <laughs> I doubt it happened. It was a nice thought. Romans chapter twelve. Romans chapter 12. We're continuing our series of studies surveying the book of Romans. I think this is the fifth, maybe sixth, and we hope to conclude today in this grand tour of Paul's famous letter to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come to your word, and we... Come with grateful hearts and eager hearts to learn from you, to be taught, and to be shaped by you. We ask that you'll open our minds to hear, minister to us by your spirit, that we may indeed be shaped by your word and come to live in a way that is most honoring to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, by way of review, you may remember that the Apostle Paul takes his theme for this letter in chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God. It is a revelation of the love of God and the kindness of God and all kinds of other things too. But Paul's theme here is to say that the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God. That is, God is a God of kindness and love and mercy and he saves, but he does it in a just way, a righteous way. He will not sidestep his own justice in order to save anyone. And the glad announcement of the gospel is that God has found in His mercy a way to satisfy His justice. Before he gets to that good news exactly, after stating it just briefly in chapter 1, verse 17, he begins in chapter 1, verse 18 through near the end of chapter 3 to expound for us the need of justification. And his point throughout all of this passage is to emphasize that men and women all over the world, we all know better than we do. It's true of the outright pagan who lives in the most benighted part of the world, who has never heard of Jesus or Moses or anything else. He has in him and in the created order revelation of God and intuitively, instinctively, he knows certain things about right and wrong, basics of good and bad, And yet all of us, to one degree or another, have rebelled against what we know. We know better than what we do. It's true of the person living in the most benighted part of the world. It's true of the Jew, he says, who has received revelation from God through Moses and the prophets. It's true of men and women the world over. We have received, to one degree or another, revelation from God, and yet we've refused it. As he says in chapter 1 and verse 18... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Knowing better, they hold it down, sometimes to the point of near extinction. And so he concludes in chapter 3 that all are sinners. Chapter 3, verses 9 and following, he gives us this litany of a condemnation of all of humanity that all of us have pursued our sins and pursued against what we know is right. All have sinned, as he says in verse 23, and come short of the glory of God. Chapter 6. Well, he expounded then the need of justification. The point of all of this is not just to show how bad humanity is, but to show how bad off humanity is and to emphasize that unless we can find put it better unless god can find a way of free justification unless god can find a way to declare us righteous apart from any cooperation on our part in producing what is good unless there's some free way of justification we're lost and so now in chapter 3 verse 21 and following through chapter 4, 5, and chapter 5 as well, Paul expounds for us the, the method of justification. And here he tells us how, in fact, God has found a way to justify us freely, a way to declare us sinners to be righteous. And that way is to provide for us a substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ who has come in the place of sinners and standing in our place has borne the curse of our sin and in return has given us his righteousness. So we stand before God with the penalty paid in full by our substitute. We're free from condemnation and we stand before God as perfect, perfectly righteous as we stand in Jesus Christ. And so, as he says in chapter 3, God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, he deals with this matter of union with Christ, being united to Jesus Christ. We're free from death and condemnation. We're free from the dominion of sin. Chapter 7, we're free from the law. And all of its ill effects, including its condemnation in chapter 8, he tells us in Jesus Christ we're free from condemnation. We're free from the fear of and the dread of God's wrath. And we have this happy prospect of joy in eternity because we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ who will inherit all things. Then we come to chapters 9 and ten and eleven and Paul deals here with the question of the people of justification. Who are those who are justified? And of course the answer is it's only those who believe. And that raises the question of what about Israel? Who has received such great and wonderful promises? Have they lost out altogether? And so Paul expounds here that God has a great plan for all of humanity, that Israel temporarily has been set aside so that the gospel spills over to the Gentiles and in the end there'll be a return at the full, when the time of the Gentiles is full, there'll be a return of Israel and all of the world will be saved and we will see men and women from every tribe and kindred and tongue under heaven singing praise to God. So here's God's plan for the ages. Now we've seen then the need for justification. God's method or the means of justification. In chapter 6, 7, and 8, as I mentioned, is freedom from the law, freedom from sin, freedom from condemnation, freedom from fear. We see the life of those who are justified. And then in chapters 9 through 11, the people who are justified. And now we come to the final chapters of the book of Romans where Paul expounds for us the ethics Of justification. How do these people who are justified live? What is it like? Now it's immediately obvious in chapter 12 verse 1 that even with just a first reading here, if you've been reading through the book, it's immediately obvious that Paul has turned a corner in his thinking. No longer is Paul expounding broad theological principles, laying out tightly reasoned theological arguments. No longer is he dealing with those kinds of fundamentals, but rather he's turned his attention to exhortation, ethics, how to live, how to behave, how to relate to one another. And he starts out with his broad statement, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here he's charging us as to how we, who are justified, should live. Up to this point, he has been telling us how we are to become, how we may become right with God. And here he tells us now, how with specific applications, how we can live rightly before God. Now I have to do this before I begin looking through the rest of these chapters, i have got to make a few observations here that I think are important. Number one, this is still my way of introduction. Number one, it would be very wrong to think that the Christian faith has only to do with theological issues. It would be very wrong, and I don't know anybody who would deny that, but we should make that very plain here before we move along that it would be very wrong to think that the Christian faith has only to do with theological issues. Ethics, behavior, and morals are all very important and a very important part of the Christian faith. And in fact, they would fall under, in the New Testament language, it would fall under doctrine. It is part of doctrine to learn how to behave and how to live and relate to one another and so on. And in fact, these are the twin promises of the gospel that we saw Um, time before last, I think, where the gospel comes to us promising that by virtue of our union with Christ, we have on the one hand freedom from condemnation, a judicial standing in Christ. I'm free from condemnation. But also there's an experiential dimension to that. In Christ I am come to live a new life. And so the gospel promises justification and it promises transformation as well. Joined to Christ, I'm free from God's wrath and I'm also liberated to live now unto God apart from the dominion of sin. This is the promise of the new covenant that God will not only forgive our, our sins but he'll write his law on our hearts and cause us to walk in his statutes. This is the testimony we make in baptism. These two who are to be baptized today, they're making that confession exactly, that I have come in Christ. By faith I'm united to Jesus. And on the one hand, that means that I'm freed from condemnation. I stand in Him safe from God's wrath. And on the other hand, it also means that just as He died, I have died. The old man is gone. I've put off the old man just as he has been raised to a new life of glory. So I've been raised with him to a new life. And the life that I have now belongs to Jesus and it is defined by my union with him. I like to call baptism our pledge of allegiance. It is our statement not only that I have come to Christ in faith, but that there are implications to that, that now we live on with him and our life is defined by him. Christianity is much 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 more than an ethic but it is it has its own distinctive ethic nonetheless and it is a very important part with gospel concerns throughout and this is what Paul takes up now from chapters chapter 12 and onward so number 1 it would be very wrong to think that the christian faith speaks only to explicitly theological issues. But number two, it would also be very wrong to get the cart before the horse. And what I mean by that is two things. Number one, we cannot possibly live rightly before God until we ourselves have become right with God. The gospel promises behavioral transformation, but it does so only by way of justification and renewal. The gospel promises these things, and so we cannot get the cart before the horse to deal with behavioral issues first would miss the point. So it would be wrong to get the cart before the horse, and what I mean by that is first, we cannot possibly live rightly before God until we ourselves have become right with God. And number two, and here we come closer to the text here, it is by a clear grasp of the gospel that the Christian is enabled to live faithfully before God. If we reverse this order, deal with behavioral issues first, inevitably we end up in complete legalism. But Paul deals with these gospel issues first, and here he says also not only our first things first theologically. But he says it is by a clear grasp of the gospel that the Christian is enabled to live before God. Now this brings us to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Notice the basis of Paul's appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. What mercies? Well, Clearly he's thinking with the word therefore, he's pointing back to it, he's thinking of the mercies of God that he's been expounding for the first 11 chapters of this letter. The great mercies of God in Christ in which he provides for us All that he requires of us. God demands satisfaction for sin. God demands righteousness. God demands transformation. And all up to this point, he's been telling us line after line how God has provided all of that for us exactly. And he's provided it freely in Christ. Come to Christ and you will have in him all that God requires of you. So you can see the connection here. Then I appeal to you, therefore, that is, on the ground of all that we've been studying so far. Or if I can say I can appeal to you on the ground of the gospel that you've just been learning. If you think I'm, if you have any question about that, the next phrase clarifies it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, on the ground of, of these gospel promises, present your bodies a living sacrifice now paul 's exhortation there is shaped in such a way that again, before we move forward through these chapters, I want to make some some other observations that I think set the framework for it for us. Number one, the Christian life is to be an outworking of the gospel the Christian life. Is an outworking of the gospel. This is the sense exactly of verse 1. It is on the basis of these mercies of God in the gospel that I've been expounding that I appeal to you to live for God. The gospel is to be, an, or the Christian life is to be an outworking of the gospel. To put it another way, the gospel has relevance not just for those on the way in. The gospel has relevance for those who are in. It has ramifications in terms of our service for Christ, how we behave, how we relate to one another, in terms of love, in terms of morals and ethics. Paul talks about this actually very often in his letters. There's a fascinating, I think fascinating uh, example of it. In Galatians chapter 2, you remember Peter was behaving in a way that was a bit racist. And Paul confronts him for it publicly You remember how he phrases the the whole situation? He says, Peter was not walking in step with the gospel. We have the same kind of thing in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul exhorts the Philippian believers, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the gospel that we embrace on the way in has ramifications for all of life. It's to be the shaping factor for how we live. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter chapter eight or chapter 1 and verse 8 and following, Paul lists these various kinds of evils that the world is, is guilty of, and he says all of this is contrary to the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. The gospel has ramifications not just for those on the way in, but it is to be the life-shaping factor for those who are in. And that explains why throughout Paul's letters he frequently appeals to gospel issues when correcting misbehavior on the part of Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, we have a situation where the church is allowing open sin on the part of one of its members and hasn't dealt with it in a disciplinary way. And Paul says, purge out the old leaven. Why? There's a gospel issue at stake because Christ, our Passover, has been slain for us. And that has implications with regard to purity, not just individually but corporately as well. In chapter 6, when he deals with, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he deals with immorality on the part of someone in the congregation, he appeals to matters like redemption. Don't you know that you've been bought by Christ and you belong to him? He deals with matters of union with Christ, by virtue of which, in everything we do, we necessarily involve him. How can you have that behavior involving Christ in it? And so on. Paul deals with these gospel issues always in such a way that they are life-shaping. And this is his point here that I think we have to see before we go on. God's mercies in Christ are the shaping factor of life under God. Number two, the gospel is the means of bringing about that life transformation. Now, on one level, I'm sure we all know this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. That is, this is the means God uses. One of the great emphases of the Reformation was to emphasize that God saves and God alone saves. The Spirit of God can take the heart, but it is not the Spirit of God working alone. It is the Spirit working by the gospel, the Spirit working by the gospel. It's the Spirit of the Word. It is not the Word alone. It is not the Spirit of God alone, but it is the Spirit working by the gospel, which brings transformation in life. My point here is to say simply that what is true on the way in is true continuously through the Christian life. And that's why Paul here writing to believers emphasizes the continuously shaping value of the gospel for believers. Let me give you a couple of samples of this elsewhere. Look at Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, beginning with verse 3, Paul speaks of the provision that we have in Christ. He's granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, and here he moves to exhortation based on these promises, for this reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now that seems to be saying that the reason The Christian life can become ineffective, less fruitful, laden with sin, as he describes it. He doesn't say the reason for that is because you're not trying hard enough. That may be involved. But what he says is the reason you've become unfruitful is you've forgotten the gospel. Isn't that interesting? The reason you've become unfruitful is you've forgotten the gospel. The reason we grow in grace and exhibit the fruit of sanctification in increasing measure, faith and virtue and steadfastness and all of these things here. The reason we fail in those things is we're not feeding continuously on the gospel. And the way we continue in it is to remember the gospel. That's what Peter says. Back to Romans, there's another example of this. Romans chapter 16, his doxology at the end, which is sort of a cap for this whole section, an end cap. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and following. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Now, here he speaks in verse 25 in terms of our strengthening. That is, God's purpose for us is transformation. And for that, we need strengthening and that's God's purpose, to strengthen us in faith, strengthen us in stability in manifesting that faith, stability in the Christian life, strengthening for holiness, practical godliness, all of that. That's God's purpose for us in Christ. The source of that transformation, he says in verse 25, is God. To him who is able to strengthen you. God does this transforming Another reminder, the grace of the gospel. What God requires of us, he does for us. So God's purpose for us is strengthening, transformation. It is God who does it. And the purpose of it, verse 27, is his own glory. But now, notice the means by which he intends to do that. Verse 25, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now, the preposition that's used here, according to, according to my gospel, can have a couple of different meanings. On the one hand, it could mean on the basis of my gospel. That is, this is what the gospel promises. This is what the gospel accomplishes. On the other hand, it could have the meaning of by means of. He's able to strengthen you by means of the gospel, my gospel. And I think most commentators would agree that this is Probably a case in which Paul likely assumes both. The central message of divine revelation, the gospel, is something that promises transformation. And it is, in fact, something that accomplishes that transformation. And so it's like Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It's the power of God unto salvation. Well, all of that to say, this is what we have here in chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, by the re, by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how does that renewing of the mind happen? Is it a mystical experience? We wait for a holy zap. I feel my mind renewed. Always through Paul's writings is renewal of the mind by means of the gospel, by means of the reflection on these mercies. That's why Paul couches the the appeal the way he does. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, then, the gospel is both truth and power. Truth and power. Transformation of life does not come just by rationalism, reasoning our way to it. It doesn't come by mysticism, waiting for some kind of a holy zap. But transformation comes by the truth of the gospel reaching the mind, being understood, and being transformed and renewed by it. Now, just how the gospel has that effect in us may be a bit complex. One level, the gospel just delivers what it promises. It brings us to God, and it brings about transformation. How does it do that? One is it stirs up love within us. Another is it excites faith in us. It excites gratitude in us. Not a debtor's kind of ethic where I have to repay God, but a a gratitude kind of return to God. Like we saw, I think, last couple of years ago in Psalm 116, verse 12, what shall I render to God for all of his benefits? a heart overflowing with love and gratitude for God. But the point is, the gospel is the means by which God transforms his people. Great story coming from the life of John Bunyan when he was in prison. You remember he was in prison for many years because he would not agree not to preach the gospel. And while he was in prison, he felt like his Gives a new meaning to the word captive audience. He preached the gospel to his inmates and to the jailers. Several came to faith in Christ. There's this one story that comes from it all that he says that the prisoners began to tell him if you keep assuring people of God's grace, they'll do whatever they want to do. And Bunyan responded, I think, very perceptively not God's people. You assure God's people of God's grace, they'll do whatever he wants them to do. And so Paul says, on the basis of the mercies of Christ, I exhort you to live for him. Just to press this one, while just say this, just to press it a little bit more. Not only is the gospel the means of this transformation, it is the sufficient means of transformation. Paul here does not assume that in order to bring these people to live for God, he has to stoop to threats, warnings of condemnation, law. But he simply expounds the gospel. And then one more point here before we move forward, just to emphasize the obvious, the gospel then is not just for the unsaved, it's for the saved. What each of us needs more than anything else, more than anything else, is a growing understanding and appreciation of the gospel. The gospel is not just the way in. It is the way through. It's the way forward. All right. Put simply then, Paul is so concerned about ethics. Paul is so concerned about Christian behavior that he's very careful not to talk about it first. But he lays the groundwork and having given us the gospel and expounded it great depth and great length now says on the basis of all of this, I appeal to you, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. All right. That was the basis of Paul's appeal. Number two. Look at the essence now of Paul's appeal. Clearly, he's calling us to a consecrated life, a life of consecration. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. The essence of the appeal is a call to a consecrated life. He piles up the terms here to describe what the consecrated life is all about. First of all, present your bodies, not just your soul. Present your bodies, a living sacrifice. That is to say, very simply, if God doesn't have your body, he doesn't have much, does he? And you can say you belong to Christ, but if it's not evident in the way that you live and behave and conduct yourself, what do we have? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, this is interesting terminology. Obviously, it's drawn from the Old Testament, Israel's worship where a sacrifice was offered to God and the entire sacrifice devoted to God, given over to him, killed. Most technically, a sacrifice is something that's not living. But Paul, borrowing from that imagery, you give yourself entirely to God. Not kill yourself. Give yourself entirely. Sacrifice yourself. Give yourself wholly to God. Present your bodies in a way that's entirely devoted to to the service of God. He goes further. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Holy, clearly having connotations of practical godliness. But first of all, before practical godliness, just the idea of devoted, consecrated to God. And if we are devoted or consecrated to God, then of course that has entailments of personal godliness and so on. And this, he says, is what is acceptable to God. Paul touches on that a bit in Romans chapter 6 by way of anticipation. We saw that. Paul says, you've been joined to Christ. That has an experiential dimension. You've then died with Christ, been raised with Christ, been freed from sin. You live a new life in him. Therefore, don't yield your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but yield yourselves to God, giving it over to Him. Now, what does that look like? What is it to give yourself over to God? What is the consecrated life? What does it look like? Well, on one one level, it's religious things, prayer, Bible reading, meditation on the things of God, attending the public ministry of the Word, fellowship with other believers, you spend your money giving to further the work of the gospel, helping others in need, visiting the sick. But in other ways, it, did, it entails what we call, ever since Martin Luther, Chris, Christian vocation. In whatever station God has saved you, whatever, wherever you are in life, that is your calling before God to live it out faithfully. If you're a plumber, if you're a housewife, Do your best, be honest, live faithfully before God and live unto Him in your vocation, doing it heartily as unto Him. This is our reason for being, is to live for God. He goes further with it. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. The world has its own values, its own standards, its own desires, ambitions, goals, outlook on life, ideals. Paul says, you're not to be shaped by those same considerations. Don't be conformed to this world. The world is is shaped by or marked by what John calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That just takes up everything about the world, doesn't it? lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life and so the world is marked by things like materialism sensuality greed self-centeredness selfish ambition and so on and Paul says you are not to be conformed to this world you're to be conformed by the gospel instead all through the Sermon on the Mount this is Jesus point that there's to be a kind of Christian counterculture We are to live in such a way that reflects that we belong to God. And so he says it from the other standpoint in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Isn't the passive voice here interesting? Be transformed. It's not something you do. Be transformed. It's something God does. Be transformed. It's your responsibility. It's a command. How in the world am I to be transformed? It's not something I can do. Well, on one level, I think Paul is saying here simply what he says everywhere in his epistles, be what you are. In Christ, have you put off the old man? Then put off the old man. In Christ, have you put on the new man? Well, then put on the new man. Is God at work in you both to will and do of his good pleasure? Then work out your salvation. Be what you are. Be what you are. And I think also here he's speaking more explicitly of the means of grace. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, having your mind influenced by those means that God has given. Gospel means the influence of the word, the influence of Christian fellowship, and so on. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's the consecrated life. Number three, then, the goal of this appeal, appeal, the last part of verse 2, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that you may discern or ascertain what the will of God is, what is good, what is right and acceptable to God. Paul has told us in the first section of this epistle, chapter 1 in particular, that the mark of those without Christ is that they're lost. They suppress the truth. And with these people who instinctively know the truth and are aware of it because they're created in God's image and so on, suppress the truth to the point, finally, that they're so confused they don't know up from down and they'll prove what is wrong disapprove of what is right, call good evil and evil good. You hear the world talk, you hear the interviews with our our society's stars, and the thinking is so confounded. How do they know? How do we know what God's will is? This is really fascinating for us, especially by our point in history when so many books and seminars have been offered on how to know God's will. And here Paul very simply says, with a mind continuously renewed by the Spirit and by the Gospel, you'll know and be brought to do God's will. And you will find then that it is good and perfect and acceptable to God. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Well, now then we come to the application of of this appeal. And that is for the rest of chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15. At this rate, we'll be here through tonight. But I think it's important for us to view the rest of chapter 12 through the rest of chapter 15 as simply an unpacking of this appeal here. Give yourselves wholly to God because of what he has done, on the ground of it. Devote yourself entirely to him What does that look like? Well, in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, he applies it in reference to the church. Here he speaks of the gifts that God gives to each of us by which we may serve one another. Giving ourselves to one another is giving ourselves to God in this passage. And then in chapter 12, verses 9, through the end of the chapter, he applies it, to personal relationships on various levels, to those in the church and outside the church as well. And the overarching uh, controlling factor here is the matter of love, the kind of love that's been shown us in Christ. And that's to be displayed to one another in our relations mutually. Serve one another, be zealous, rejoice in hope, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, minister to one another. That's what the consecrated life looks like. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, it's spelled out in relation to authority. This famous passage with regard to the Christian and human government. And Paul says, Be submissive, recognize, and submit to the sovereignty of God in appointing these leaders. Be good citizens. Verses 8 and following of chapter 13, he applies it in reference specifically to God's laws and his commands. And here he am, emphasizes the need for obedience and conformity to God's law fulfilling the law now he does emphasize again that the law is fulfilled in this one word love your neighbor and here's this overarching this is what overarching consideration this is what the devoted life to god looks like chapter 14 and into chapter 15 we have him applying it again in regard to church life relations with one another here in particular He's applying it to the weaker and the stronger brother. The weaker brother who has all of these taboos that are not necessary. Is this day holy? Is that drink okay? Is that food okay? And on the one level he's telling us, get over it. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, joy, and peace, and the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, he says, be careful not to upset your brother in such a way that he stumbles. This is what the consecrated life looks like. Chapter 15, he applies it to our relationship to the lost. And here the the whole burden of what Paul is saying is the need for evangelism, to take the gospel universally to all people. We have this purpose in life to be a light for Christ to those who haven't heard. That's what the consecrated life looks like in personal relationships, in church life, relation to the government, relation to one another inside and out, and so on. And then chapter 16 we have closing remarks and some personal greetings to those in Rome. This, then, is the ethical demand of the Christian gospel. It is a call to discipleship, to give ourselves to Christ in every dimension of our lives. Give yourself to God completely, without reserve, as a living sacrifice. And this is to find its expression in virtually every dimension of life. This is in broad outline is the gospel shaped life. And Paul is saying simply here, have you been rescued from your sin? And if so, let's see it in these ways. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we need this kind of instruction. It is certainly a display of your wisdom, knowing our needs and giving us these portions of your word. We pray that you would shape us by it. Give us, Lord, a greater sense of the greatness of your love in Jesus Christ, a greater sense of the rescue that we enjoy in him, a greater awareness that we have been saved from sin and unto God. And may that be reflected in how we live. Particularly in this church, we pray that you'll give us grace to show this gospel life in our relations to one another. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, take your hymnals. Turn to number four.